Would you please join me this morning in prayer? Father in heaven, you have brought us to yourself and together we join you in bringing your grace to this world. For your work in this world is made visible through your people. And and while we can wonder about your plans and purposes, Lord, you know them. There is no indifference in you. It is your faithfulness that has caused us to be brought in and it is your purpose, Lord, that we promote and it is promoted through your people. Though we are seemingly insignificant, you have loved us and your character can be known through us. Father, we confess that we have too small of a view of your purposes. Lord, we easily lose sight of eternity and get caught up in this world. We pray that you would give us insight into your ways. Lord, that your purposes would be our purposes. Father, protect us from a love of this world. Protect us from a wandering heart that does not love you or your people or your good plan. Lord, we thank you for your grace. While we are slow and lazy, you are a gracious God who is long-suffering with his people. Through Jesus Christ, we can know a safety that only you can give. Lord, we do not need to please you through any effort of our own, but our work is a response to your completed work. Cause us, Lord, to always remember your faithfulness. Give us hearts of thanksgiving that are ever increasing. Lord, we thank you uh, also that we are not alone in this world that you have given us other like-minded churches that are faithfully laboring for your gospel. This morning, we thank you for Salem Reformed Baptist here in Salem. Lord, we pray for Pastor Gustavo Barros and the, the elders there. We pray, Lord, that they would be ever bold in proclaiming your truth. As they are now meeting without a permanent building, we pray that, that you would meet their need in every way. May they faithfully rely on you and your provision as the word is faithfully preached there in that church. Lord, we pray for this world as you have commanded us. This morning, we pray for the community surrounding the Covenant School in Nashville. Lord, you hate violence. You hate the shedding of innocent blood. Lord, this past week, the lives of seven individuals were cut short in an act of of violence. It has left families grieving and more questions than answers. Lord, we pray for the victims and their families, that they would know a peace that passes all understanding. Lord, we pray that you would care for them in their time of grief. While they wrestle with the injustice of this shooting, we pray that that they would know that you are a God of justice and all wrongs will be righted. Lord, we also thank you uh, this morning for the the birth of Hayes Wilder Gadditch. Lord, we thank you for Uh, everyone's health, and we pray that Andy and Ashley would raise their daughter in the fear and admonition of you. Lord, may there never be a day that she does not know you as her Lord and Savior. And Lord, this morning as the word is brought to us, we pray that it would bring life. Lord, that that the the life that that comes from this morning, we would see fruit in the years uh, to come, Lord, even down the road. We just thank you for what you are doing here in this church. Amen. All right, this morning we um, have a special guest speaker, though he's not too um, much of a guest, though he is very much special. Uh, (laughs) 
This, this church is blessed immensely um, with the ministry of uh, Kelton Hedstrom, our uh, youth pastor. And this morning, we get to uh, know even more what it is that our youth get to experience week in and week out. So, Kelton, welcome. Thank you, Nick. Good morning, church. When you work with children, you are quick to learn that they imitate their parents. They pick up on phrases, speech patterns, pronunciations, mannerisms, emotional responses, and a laundry list of other behaviors. I happen to be this church's director of youth ministry. And this position has offered me a front row seat to the way your children imitate you. So when a child whose family attends this church came up to me and said I looked like Fabio, a cultural reference I had to Google, as I'm too young to understand, it was not hard to deduce that this statement was not sourced from this child's mind, but from the child's parents who had commented that I looked like Fabio. While children have a knack to imitate the things you don't mean to teach them, my guess is that many of you work to actively model and teach your children what it looks like to live as good members of society, as people of character, as followers of Christ. Parenting, though it most certainly has its passive moments, is an active task. Children do not magically become good citizens or people of character, capable employees or loving spouses when they grow up. I remember the words of my mother that she often told my sister and I as we grew up. The intention of my parents was to raise children who would thrive as adults, mature and capable, hardworking people of character. They set these goals with the hope that we would one day carry them out ourselves. And not only did my parents tell us of this goal, they modeled what it looked like. They were calling us to imitation, to join in the way that they lived. Looking to the book of Colossians, we find Paul serving as the spiritual relative to the young church of Colossae, a relative distant but sincere in care and commitment to the church. In his letter, Paul instructs the church on what it means to live as the glory of Christ on earth. Yet as we near the end of Colossians, we find Paul not only teaching sound doctrine, but calling the church to join him and the fellow believers as active members of God's kingdom. Paul has laid out the example of his ministry for the church to follow. This example is one there to imitate. Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians that they should imitate him, Paul, as he imitates Christ. And though not written out like it is in his first letter to the church of Corinth, 
Paul quietly offers his example as it reflects Christ as when the church of Colossae is to follow. Paul's goal is not merely to equip the church of Colossae, but to commission them to join in Christ's gospel work. This morning, we will turn our attention to the last chapter of Colossians, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Our text today is considered the conclusion of the section referred to as the body. It's the theological meat and potatoes of the book of Colossians. Paul has spent the last few chapters calling the church to new life, when unified with the church in and through Christ Jesus, Lord. In today's text of focus, we find three commands written by Paul instructing the Colossians in prayer and witness. Let's read the text. If you'll turn with me to Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. In these five verses, we find not only the church of Colossae, but us, the body of mission fellowship, called to action. The task at hand, join in Christ's gospel work. Join in Christ's gospel work. Let's begin our study of the text by acknowledging where we've been. Paul is making a clear and abrupt transition away from the household code to conclude the body of his letter. How does he transition to his last thoughts? Well, he moves on. (laughs) Quite simply, he moves on to the next idea. No need for a conjunction, though our subject is not explicitly linked to the idea of being discussed directly before it. We find the themes of the overall book interwoven throughout verses two through six. In another sense, our section today answers a similar question posed by last week's text. How are we to live under Christ's rule? How are we to live under Christ's rule? Located in verse 2 is the first of the commands to the Colossians in this section to continue steadfastly in prayer. Paul writes, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. This is the first point. Be steadfast, watchful, and thankful in prayer. Be steadfast, watchful, and thankful in prayer. The command seems direct. It is. Be steadfast, be watchful, and be thankful in prayer. 
However, we would do an injustice to the richness of what this calls us to in the unwritten invitation extended by Paul in this text if we did nothing more than gloss over this first verse. I say this because it's quite easy to take the three descriptors of prayer as they are, simply nodding that prayer is good and not truly considering what steadfast, watchful, and thankful prayer is. We owe the word of God our curiosity here, embodied by questions oftentimes. Our first question then, what is prayer? Put simply, prayer is talking to God. To be a bit wordier, prayer is an offering of communication to God. Before we even consider how we pray, we must first check our lives and make sure that first we pray. Church, do you? Do you pray? Do you pray with one another? Do you pray for one another? Do you submit your request to the Father? Do you thank the Father for what he gives? If our relationship with God is the most important relationship of the Christian life, then we better talk to him. So, how should we? Our first description of prayer is steadfast. And steadfastness is not a word that we throw around often. The word communicates a particular sense of dutiful, unwavering devotion or dedication. It denotes a sense of consistency. Something steadfast does not change or waver in adversity. I think of a lighthouse, unmoved, though beaten by the waves. Paul in Ephesians 6 phrases this idea of steadfast prayer differently. Writing the church need be praying at all times in the spirit. Even more relevant might be the way Paul models this idea of steadfast prayer earlier in the letter, stating he and his companions have not ceased to pray for the church. Paul commands the Colossians to be quick to pray in preparation for, in response to, all things. Yet prayer is not a mere mental self-checkup. Let us remind ourselves that prayer is communicating with the Father, which is who we pray to. So if we're to be praying to the Father always, who is our mind to be set on? Always. The Father, God. Do you remember the call to set our mind on the things above in Colossians 3.2? Does it not echo here? Yet steadfastness is not the only descriptor of prayer that calls to mind Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. The second is to be watchful in prayer. What does that mean? How interesting to describe something we often do with our eyes closed as being watchful. Watchful is a word where I feel a sense of knowing what it means, yet I'm unsure if I can actually articulate a comprehensive, cohesive definition. So in order to do so, where should we look to but scripture? 
This idea of watchfulness comes up in the New Testament quite a few times, actually. An example specifically regarding prayer is Christ calling Peter, John, and James to stay awake or watch while he prayed in the garden. Christ actually repeats this command to stay awake and watch three times in Matthew 26. I find verses 40 through 41 insightful. The text reads, He, Jesus, said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In Revelation chapter 3, we find Christ call the church in Sardis to wake up. The same word found in our text today, to wake up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, a text dealing with the return of Christ calls the church to be awake, which in the Greek is the same word as watchful. It's the same word as watchful. With all of these adding nuance to our text, I think the point becomes clearer. This is a call to active endurance. Are you aware of the enemy's advances? Are you aware of the flesh's weakness? Are you aware of God's triumph? Are you praying regarding all of them? If Christ calls you to watch him and pray, are you awake? Alert to the Lord's call, to the good works he set before us, to his commands. Are you concentrated on him, focused and unwavering in watching him upon the throne? Recall again Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Have you set your mind on the things above? Have you set your mind to prayer? As we come to the third descriptor of how the church is to pray, consider what attitudes could satisfy the first two aspects. Unwavering dedication and alertness. Are we talking about watching college basketball or prayer? Is our attitude somber, tense, fearful even? Looking to the text, we find the call to be thankful. In prayer. This idea of thankfulness is not a new one, but a call given by Paul since the first chapter of Colossians and carried out through the rest of the book. What does the Christian have to be thankful for? Let's look to the first three chapters. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, cites the truest reason the Christian is to practice thanksgiving. The text reads, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
In verse 12, we find Paul thanking the Father that the Colossians have been qualified by the Father to share in the inheritance of the saints, that they have received salvation through the work of Christ Jesus. We must learn that to, to thank the Lord for our salvation. We must learn to thank the Lord for our salvation, the gift that he's given to us. To be thankful is to give praise or credit, and the Christian can always look to the cross, to the work of Christ, and be thankful for it, regardless of life's circumstances. The Christian can always look to the cross and be thankful. So, to ask again, how shall we pray? With devotion, with alertness, our spiritual eyes open and looking to the heavenly throne, asking our king what he's calling us to do for his blessing and wisdom and strength and comfort and thanking him, thanking him for life, for provision, for the trials that produce fruit, for the body of believers unified under the one gospel, thanking him for the cross, for salvation. Church, how do you start your day? How do you end it? How do you prepare for the tasks ahead? How do you close them? A call to devout prayer, to steadfastness, to unceasing communication with the Father is a good call. Prayer is something we cannot do enough of. In fact, this posture of prayer is steadfast, watchful, and thankful, prepares us for eternity. Consider eternity with God. Our steadfastness it will be perfected in the eternal presence of God. Our watchfulness will be perfected as we look upon the throne of God. And our thankfulness will be perfected as we eternally praise and give glory to God. Do you delight in prayer as a shadow of heaven? as something pointing towards eternity, as a glimpse of it? Do you see what hope prayer points to? Prayer is not only an introduction, but preparation for eternity. Church, may we be prepared. Now we could at this point, simply move on to the second command in our text. But I believe there's one more piece of the text we ought to observe. Remember that Paul has set an example in this letter for the Colossians to look at. Do you see how Paul has prepared the Colossians by modeling prayer earlier in the book? Looking to the first chapter, we find Paul state that he and his companions always thank God when they pray for the Colossians and that their prayers to them are unceasing. Paul models how to pray 
then calls the Colossians to do as he does. Now, Paul's subtle call to imitation does not just end in how he prays. Looking to verses three and four of our text, we find a second command to pray also for Paul and his companions. Paul's prayers of thanksgiving to the Father were for the Colossians. His unceasing prayer was for the growth, maturity, and salvation of the Colossians. As the church is to pray regarding their own lives, so they are to now pray for Paul as he has prayed for them. However, Paul's prayer request is not general. He offers a specific petition that he asked the church to pray, which is our second point. To pray for the evangelistic work of the gospel. Pray for the evangelistic work of the gospel. Let's read over verses three and four again. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. What exactly is Paul saying? When we slow down and read through the train of thought, we discover a clear task Paul has been commissioned for. Paul opens with the command to pray for him. But again, this prayer is more specific than a request for health, wealth, and happiness. Paul continues on to clarify what the Colossians should pray, to pray that God would open a door for Paul and his companions to proclaim the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, which is why Paul is in prison, that he may make it clear, which is how he ought to speak. There's a lot to unpack here. I actually believe we can condense Paul's request to the following. Pray that God gives us opportunity to declare the mystery of Christ clearly. Paul's request is to pray that God gives us opportunity to declare the mystery of Christ clearly. As a reminder, we should recall what the mystery of Christ is which is Christ in us, stated in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. The church is not one unified by race, by heritage, by economic status or education level, but by Christ in us. Ephesians 3, 6 further supports this with the statement that Christ's mystery is the inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom. Simplifying it a step further, Paul refers to God's mystery as being Christ in the second chapter of Colossians. So, Paul requests an open door to proclaim the gospel, which is why he's in prison, that he might make it clear, which is how he ought to speak. What is it that Paul wishes to make clear? The mystery of Christ. 
Why does Paul feel the need to make this mystery of Christ clear? It's not as if Paul is indicating that the gospel is hidden behind some ancient Bible code that requires you to buy 15 boxes of cereal, cut out the tickets, send in the tickets, receive a decoder ring, and then crack the mystery. Let's think back to the historical context of not only the Roman Empire, but the context of Israel. The people of Israel, though living under Roman rule, did not perceive themselves as Romans. In fact, the Israelite view of anyone outside of Abraham's descent was that they were outside of the covenant. Pagans who did not know the one true God. Yet the claim of the Christians who claimed to worship the God of Israel was that Gentiles are now welcome into the people of God as equals, as equals. The Roman world, which would have been fairly familiar with Judaism, would have been somewhat shocked at the concept that the people claiming to worship the God of Israel were calling them pagans into worship of the God of Israel. On the other hand, there would have been many Jews confused as to why Gentiles, pagans, were being invited in. These different people groups, separated by historical context, by religious difference and cultural incongruence, were now called to the same salvation, accomplished into one body. Paul prays that he can make this clear. And how is this unity accomplished? It is no mystery, for the gospel is clear. And this is the gospel, that Christ, who is God, became flesh, that he died for the sins of his people, that he rose again, that he conquered death, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. This was not just any message, church. This was and is our hope. This is our hope. Paul says that he is to make this clear, which is how he ought to speak. Church, we ought to make the gospel clear should make it clear in two ways. First, we must be clear in what the gospel in its entirety says. Part of this means acknowledging the bad news of our rebellion as, human, as humans against our creator, which in turn makes the gospel very good news. Second, we must be clear that the king our gospel proclaims is the source of our new life in unity. This is making clear the mystery of Christ. Returning to the flow of verses three and four, can you sense Paul's passion, his devotion to the work, his care for it, how personal it is to him? This is a powerful, heartfelt request 
Even more so when you consider Paul's status. A prisoner. And for what? The same gospel. He prays for open doors to preach. Paul is a prisoner for doing what he asks the church to pray for. Paul, imprisoned for his proclamation of the gospel, requests an open door for the gospel. How could he feel such a sense of hope? Dedication to the work, zeal despite the consequence of his actions. I think of the conversion of the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, where Paul's imprisonment reveals itself as an open door for the gospel to declare the mystery of Christ. In his last letter to Timothy, Paul reflects on the work of God, writing, Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The offspring of David has preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Church, the word of God is not bound. Paul was suffering for his proclamation yet he still asked for opportunities to proclaim. It turns out that outside circumstances cannot diminish the value, the truth, the power of the king our gospel proclaims. Nor can outside circumstances retract the commands to proclaim the gospel. In fact, they amplify it. A candle burns brighter in the darkness. So, are we to still pray for Paul? That's the command, right? Well, the reality is, is that Paul has finished the race and has entered the eternal presence of God. Yet the mission has not ended. Church, the Great Commission is just as much for us as it was for the first century church. The Great Commission is just as much for us as it was for the first century church. The messenger will change, but it is the same message we are to pray for. Church, will you pray with me? Lord, we pray for the gospel work. Father, we pray for our sister churches and the pastors who shepherd them as they declare the mystery of Christ. Open doors for them, Lord, that they may make the gospel clear. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso from our cell. Father, we pray that you open doors for the gospel to be proclaimed. 
a proclamation that is accompanied by persecution. We pray that they make it clear, Father. We pray for the Garcia family, Lord, as they prepare to serve your church in the Philippines. We pray for open doors to proclaim the gospel that they might make it clear, Lord. We pray for the pastors of this church that you open doors for them to proclaim the mystery of Christ clearly, Lord. And Lord, as we finish this text, we humbly acknowledge we are called to this gospel work. We pray for open doors to proclaim Christ. Crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, reigning, returning. Lord, we pray that we might make this clear. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. Church, our task is to pray for the evangelistic work of the gospel. Yet our task is more than prayer, as powerful as prayer is. We are not only called to support those doing the gospel work, but to join in the work. Our third and final point for our text is just that, to display the gospel's required work. To display the gospel's required work. I really don't know why, but every time I watch a cooking show, I find myself firing up the old burner, preheating the old oven, and ruining a very easy recipe. <laughs> Church, when we pray for the gospel to go out, it stirs up our hearts. It gives us energy, a desire to go and do the work. Not only is doing the gospel work a natural byproduct of prayer, it's a command in and of itself. When we pray for the gospel work, we find ourselves with the energy to do it. Paul has called the Colossians to pray like he prays, to pray for him like he prays for them. Paul will continue this call to imitation by now asking the church to not only pray for the work of the gospel proclamation, but take part in it. Let's read the last two verses, five and six, one more time. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech Always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We find our final command of this section in verse five. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. The rest of the two verses are ways this is accomplished. As with the rest of the text, it's worthwhile to ask questions of some of the more ambiguous phrases to give us a more accurate understanding of the text. First, who are these outsiders? Who are these outsiders? We can look to Mark 4.11 that simply tells us that outsiders are those outside the kingdom of heaven. Outsiders are those outside the kingdom of heaven. 
Outsiders are those to whom the gospel is a mystery. Outsiders are those to whom the gospel is a mystery. And the Christian, the church, is commanded to walk in wisdom toward them. We actually can find what walking in wisdom looks like from the opening of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 9 through the first part of 12. Before instructing the Colossians to walk in wisdom, Paul prays that they're actually filled with spiritual wisdom so that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To walk in spiritual wisdom is to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and as a result, as the text says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. The bearing of fruit in all good works, growth in the knowledge of God, being strengthened by his power, endurance and patience with joy and thankfulness. These are all supposed to be on display both by the individual Christian and the church body and on display for those outside the church. Those who do not recognize Christ as Lord. I think that in the modern world, many are trying to figure out how they should interact with those who disagree with them. I would say the modern response is to tolerate those who agree with us and offer venomous rebuttal to those who disagree. Our text today calls us to live in contrast to such a manner. Maturity, knowledge, endurance, patience, joyfulness, and thankfulness are all supposed to be on display. For this is what walking in wisdom looks like. Are these present in your life? Are they present in the life of our church? Paul follows the command to walk in wisdom toward outsiders with a statement to make the best use of the time. The statement actually contains two elements. First, the idea of making the most of the time carries with it the idea of opportunity. Are you looking for the chance to make clear your hope in King? Are you seizing those opportunities? Church, we might not get a second chance to proclaim the gospel to a friend or a relative. Don't hesitate when the opportunity presents itself. Do we waste time that we've been given with trivial, meaningless tasks? Or are we strategic and purposeful in how we live and speak? Thinking back over the book of Colossians, we've been presented with the death of the old man and the new self raised with Christ. We've been given the gift of life and this is not a gift to be squandered. This is not something to waste. New life 
comes with a new way of living. The second aspect of time ties to watchfulness. Recall the connection to Christ's return affiliated with watchfulness. The phrase, the time, offers a similar connection. Church, we live as citizens of a kingdom that is here, but not yet. That is the time, the age. Christ reigns, but has not yet returned. Take advantage of such a time as Christ rules, but has not yet returned to judge the living and the dead. He has sent his people out. Go, fulfill his commission. The time is now. There's no greater message, no greater offering, no greater act of love you can offer someone than the gospel. Offer it. How then, church, are we to proclaim this gospel? When you talk to those who do not recognize Christ as Lord, let your words be gracious. If we look to the Greek, there's an interesting connection with the word thankfulness in verse 2 and gracious in verse 6. They have the same root. These words both suggest a particular attitude. Might we consider an all-too-common evangelistic approach or attitude for just a moment? There are countless videos on the internet of street evangelists and apologists humiliating a passerby who decides to make a snarky comment. Might I ask you a question? Has anyone ever convinced you to listen to them by belittling and mocking you? Has anyone ever convinced you to listen to them by belittling and mocking you? Is it not the author of Proverbs who writes, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger? Is it not Paul who calls the church to never distance itself from love in its action? The word gracious suggests an attitude of joy, of kindness. Our speech should be joyful, kind, truthful, grateful, and forgiving. We're commanded to it. Every word we say in everything we do must be for the glory and sake of Christ Jesus. Our speech is to be gracious, seasoned with salt. Consider with me how we use salt. For anyone who cooks, or eats for that matter, take a moment to acknowledge how universally helpful salt is. Salt does more than simply add another flavor. Salt can highlight the subtle, can make the sweet more vibrant and the bitter more pleasant. 
If our speech is to be seasoned with salt, then our speech ought to bolster our declaration of Christ as Lord. In the world of food, salt makes something appealing. Taste better. To translate this idea over to how we speak, we should be winsome in how we talk. We should be winsome. This looks different for different people. Consider the wide range of foods that are improved upon by the addition of salt. Consider the differences of us here in the congregation. Though our winsomeness might look different, the church is united by who she is winsome to, the outsider, and who she is to be winsome for, which is the glory of God. We're called to be winsome together to the outsider for the glory of God as a church. So our speech is to be gracious and winsome. The result is that we know how we can answer all people. Answer what? First Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16 tells us that we should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, we could spend days articulating the despair faced by those without Christ. Does your life look different? Do your actions display hope in your king's present reign in coming return? Peter calls for the Christian to be prepared to proclaim the gospel with gentleness and respect. Paul calls us to be prepared with grace and winsomeness. We could describe the broken methods by which the world tries to both divide and unify. Does the unity of the church look different? Do our actions and words give credit to the founder and finisher of our faith? Do we live out the gospel together? Church, I'm convinced we don't have to alter or modify the gospel to make it attractive, what it says. The result of the gospel is true unity, purpose, freedom from sin, hope, life to the fullest. So when you're asked where your hope is found, are you able to respond with the gospel? Do your actions, conversations, attitude, and responses lead to opportunities to present the gospel? They should. Yet don't be mistaken. Our actions alone are not enough. A wise walk demands wise talk. Today, church is Palm Sunday. 
where we remember Christ's triumphant entrance into Jerusalem. We read that a large crowd heard Christ was coming. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Today is a day we are reminded the king is to be declared. The king is to be declared. For most of my youthful days, say that as a young person, I was concerned with messing up the gospel. In fact, I was more concerned with messing up the gospel than actually proclaiming it. I, in humility, admit that I still battle this notion of a right time. A notion that believes that one day there will be this magical moment where a friend of mine is just so flabbergasted by my holiness <laughs> that they can't help but exclaim, what is it about you that's so different? I have to know. Our words in actions, our communal life as a church. I hope and pray that these lead to such questions, but I don't think we should wait for them. The moments of, I have to know. Friends, we're called to make best use of the time for a reason in waiting for an invitation to proclaim the gospel, I admit I have missed opportunities altogether. The king is here. Declare him at all times with both action and word. Be reminded that the king is to be declared. In practice, church, be wise, be gracious, be winsome. Scripture is not commanding you to answer the question of, hey, how was your day with the Nicene Creed? <laughs> it is calling you to make sure all you do and say both glorifies and identifies Christ as king. Church, this week, I pray that you pray with steadfastness, a watchful mind and a thankful heart. I pray that your concern, that you concern yourself with the evangelistic work of the gospel being done by our brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that the Lord opens doors in your lives 
to proclaim the mystery of Christ clearly. I pray that you leap through those open doors, that your words are gracious and seasoned with salt and that you are able to provide an answer to all people that points them toward the king of all creation. Will you pray with me? Father, when we consider who you are and what you have done, we are inclined to praise you. For your perfection, holiness, righteousness, goodness, justice, your mercy, your truth, love, and grace. Lord, for all these and more, we praise you. For the son you sent because of your love for us. Lord, we thank you for the cross where he suffered and died in the place of sinners. Lord, we praise you for his resurrection. We praise you until Christ returns and into eternity. We praise you. Thank you for the salvation you have granted us, for the church you have built for the hope we hold to. Lord, you have called your people to be more than bystanders in the workings of your kingdom. We have been commissioned to carry on the work you have given the church. May we prepare our hearts for this work in prayer. Father, may our thoughts always be heavenward. May we praise you for all the good things you give and may we constantly submit our trials and troubles to you. Father, help us to have missional hearts and prayers, interceding on behalf of those who do every aspect of the gospel work. To those to whom this gospel is a mystery, may they see it declared clearly by the people of God. Grant us spiritual wisdom that we may walk in it. Let our words and actions reflect the truth. May they be gracious and winsome. In the name of Christ Jesus, Lord, we pray, amen.